Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. There's a new special on Netflix that I want to tell you about. It's by a comic named Tom Papa. I loved it. It's called You're Doing Great. Tom's been a comic for a long time. He played the comedy seller in the early 90s. He toured many times with Jerry Seinfeld, and he has half a dozen specials on his resume. This one, though, is a little bit different. Tom has never exactly been a cynical comic. He's always been the friendly, observational type. But on this special, he worked hard to erase the cynicism from his act, which, in my mind, is partly why it's so remarkable that it's so funny. The essential message of You're Doing Great is that you're doing great, that the modern world is remarkable, that we actually have beautiful lives, and that maybe we just need to readjust our expectations of what it is to be happy or successful. Also, one heads up, if it sounds like Tom and I recorded this interview inside our houses, uh, that's because we did record this interview inside our houses. You might actually at some point hear my dog bark at a squirrel. Uh, That's kind of what it's going to be like moving forward for a little while here on Bullseye. So uh, we're doing our best. It's a great conversation. In Tom's new special, You're Doing Great, much of his material focuses on the little triumphs in what can otherwise feel like a very mundane life. Tom captures this perfectly in a bit about the sense of accomplishment you get when you finally remember to cross a small errand, like buying toothpaste off your to-do list. You run out of toothpaste. You need more toothpaste. You tell yourself that for a week and a half. Standing on it, squeezing it, pushing through the hole from the inside. Just trying to get one strand on your brush so you don't feel like a monster out in the world. You finally stop at CVS on the way home. You slide that fresh tube out of that long box. You feel like you did something, don't you? Yeah, you feel like a winner. (laughs) Tom Papa, welcome to Bullseye. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I love your show. Oh, thank you. What unusual circumstances for us to be speaking in. (laughs) (laughs) So many times I was driving around LA listening to your show and thinking, I'd love to get in there one day. And (laughs) here we are, almost in there. (laughs) You're like, gosh, I, I I hope that one day I'll have to close my doors and make sure that my kids know not to open them and make sure the dog is quiet. Yeah. Yeah, very unusual. I'm I'm thrilled to have you on the show. One of the things that comes up on this special over and over again is kind of readjusting your one's expectations of one's own life. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to, (laughs) the verb that comes to mind is settling, Uh but it's not settling. It's like, it's almost, it's almost fundamentally optimistic what you're what you're pitching to us Mm -hmm. yeah it's not it's not settling it is readjusting your expectations in a very realistic way i think you know i think we have gotten caught up for a long time in thinking 
for all these different reasons of thinking that life is supposed to be this nonstop spectacular <laughs> and all of these things that are dangled in front of us. We think that those are the things that are going to bring joy and happiness and meaning. And they're not, they're really not. And when you just recalibrate and realize like, what are the important things in your life? You realize, Hey, this is more realistic and I'm actually doing pretty great. Yeah. I think often as an adult now of when I was a kid and, and my stepmother would tell us a story about like she, she grew up in Belfast in Northern Ireland and, and her father died when she was young. She had a bunch of brothers and sisters mm. and she'd like tell us a story about fighting with her sister over a piece of bacon because mm. they got a piece of bacon once a week. <laughs> right. <laughs> like that was their meat for the week. You know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> and I think, oh my gosh. <laughs> right. Like, maybe she was, she, she was either trying to teach me a lesson or just very resentful of me. <laughs> either way, <laughs> one or the other, maybe some of each. Yeah, a little bit of a little bit of each. My grandmother grandparents were the same way. And they would they just had this I don't think they resented what we had, but they just had this really ingrained perspective of life. And they had been through so much uh through the world wars and the great depression and everything that followed. And they just had this other way of looking at the world that was very realistic and very, do you have time for a short story? Yeah. This is public radio, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing but time, baby. Um, on nine 11, I was at Newark airport and I was trying to, I was on my way to fly to a gig and, Everything happened and before I even boarded the plane. And I was living in Manhattan at the time and watched as the towers came down from from Newark Airport. And I couldn't get back into the city to get to my girlfriend who I live with. And But my grandmother lived around Giant Stadium, like by the Lincoln Tunnel, like 20 minutes outside the city. And I figured, well, like, I'm in a cab after everybody kind of got a grip of we got to, we shouldn't stay at the airport all day. I guess we should go somewhere. I couldn't get into New York. And I said, well, I'll go to my Nana's house. And I drove up to my Nana's house in this cab and I, she opens the door and there's a woman who had, you know, battled all these kind of illnesses. She lives alone in this little house and she'd been through all the things I listed before. And she was so excited to see me. And I, he was like, I immediately started to cry as soon as I saw her. I'm like, did you see what happened? I was just in shock. And you see someone that you love and you kind of let your guard down. And she said, oh, yeah, but it, look at how lucky am I that you get to visit? And she brought me inside and I turned on her little TV and I'm watching the news. And she came in and said, okay, I have to go to my bridge group now. I was like, well, well what? <laughs> she said, I, 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 today's whatever day it is, I, I, have, I play bridge with my lady friends. I was like, but do you see what's happening? And she goes, oh, look at you. You're upset. Here you go. Here's half of my tuna sandwich. You sit here. I'm going to go play bridge. I'll be back. We're going to be fine. <laughs> and she took off. <laughs> 
and I just carry that with me to this day. They just had a real understanding that life can be so much harder at any moment. And we've seen the hardest that they could throw at us and we're still here and still going along. And that just really kind of stuck with me as a dose of reality of, yeah, yeah. I mean, anything at any time can happen. And if you're still standing, you actually are doing pretty great. You've been a comic now for more than 25 years. Mm. Do you find that that attitude is one that you share with your comedy peers? Uh, sh that we all carry that perspective, you mean? Or yeah. that I share it with them verbally? No, no, that they, that they have that attitude that you just expressed. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they don't. Um, yeah, no, they don't. There's a, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say what they, uh, Mark Marin has a new special out now and his is called like fun end times. <laughs> and I was listening to it and I love Mark and I was listening to it and we touch on a lot of similar subjects. We're similar ages and we touch on similar potential disasters and things that come up in, in your life. And I said to him, you, we go down the same road and then you get off at this exit, <laughs> which is pretty dark and, and nihilistic. And I take the next exit up on the left, which is on the sunny side of the street. <laughs> and I, yeah. And I think that is kind of where I, I think most of the comics are getting off with Mark. <laughs> I mean, I think that there is an idea that, being a friendly comedian is the easy way to go, but uh, whereas the other or the alternative is is to be an edgy truth teller who tells people things they can't handle or whatever. Mm. Um, it's not a, an opinion I'm ascribing to Mark, who's also a friend of mine. Yeah, but it feels to me like it is pretty easy to get a group of people on board for this thing sucks. Whatever it is, that is a relatively easy flag to rally around. Yeah. Uh, relative to <laughs> this thing is nice. No, 100%. I think it's much more difficult. <laughs> to, and, you know, most comedy is, is, lives in cynicism and negativity, which is great. And it's very funny. And it's t filled with tension. And I have to go towards that as well to expose what I want to talk about, but I do not believe in living there. <laughs> I don't believe and carry my life and live my life in a way where I hang out in that area. And when I was touring over the last two and a half years, I just started to really get this response from the audience that when I would tell them that they were doing great and I was telling them that, you know, things are difficult, but we're going to be okay. And all this kind of people were coming up to me after the shows everywhere in the country and literally thanking me and saying, thank you for saying I'm doing okay. Cause I'm so filled with anxiety. I'm so filled with this. And they were just responding to, to that. And I said, well, you know, this is going to be a little bit of an experiment, I think to, to do continue with my act, but lean in for the first time, lean in a little bit harder in something that's less cynical and more positive and and it really just started to work but it's 
only in looking back do I realize, oh, that was kind of something I, I kind of pulled something off <laughs> because that isn't that isn't the, the that's not in the brochure of how to be a stand up comedian. <laughs> Were you worried that you would turn lame? No, I was always kind of lame. <laughs> I was never the guy, you know, leaning against the back wall, smoking a cigarette. But because I love stand-up and came from New York and was around, you know, Dave Attell and Nick DiPaolo and Colin Quinn and, you know, Dave Chappelle and all these crazy great people... I knew I being lame in comedy is being hacky or being retread or and not being honest or being false. And I so I had that filter and knew what not to do. And in the beginning of my career, I would try and be a little edgy and I would try and be a little try and mimic that attitude. But that's not me. And the audience also knows it's not me. And it was only through years and years of trying to create an act with integrity while being completely myself, does it end up not being lame? Did you just decide that you were going to be a stand-up comic at some point? I did. I, uh, I consciously did in seventh, seventh grade. I, uh, I was always funny and I was going through sixth, seventh grade. I was going through, it was always funny, but I really saw that, this was more than something casual. I was using it to befriend all of the older kids that had stayed home in the summer and that were around like all my friends. I didn't have a lot of kids my age at the time. They would all go away for the summer and we stayed in town and to, to hang out and be accepted by some of these older kids. I was, I remember you know, like funny is my role kind of a thing. And then I went through this moment of, in what seemed like a week, who knows, maybe it was longer. I walked into my friend's older brother's room and it was a bunch of kids in there, you know, all older and intimidating. And they were listening to Steve Martin's Let's Get Small album. And they were all just cracking up. And I was laughing too, even though I didn't understand a lot of the jokes. And then later on was at my other friend's house and listening to George Carlin's Class Clown on vinyl. And it really struck me at that, after seeing the, hearing that second album, like, oh, these are grownups and this is a job. Like these, these are just funny people who are now men. Maybe I don't have to go into sales. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That was like a huge realization. And literally from that point on, I just thought I'm going to go that direction. But it, did it seem like something that you really could do sure <laughs> that's wild to me like when i i because i had similar moments when i was that age but i think when i was that age it seemed like an they were characters from a story not human beings like the prospect that, <laughs> no you know what I, I mean yeah no i get what you're saying and that makes that's totally that makes more sense than what i was thinking which was <laughs> <laughs> which was oh they're all wait till they meet me <laughs> They're waiting for me, right? John Belushi, oh, when I can finally get a car. <laughs> I was just thought, no, that's I'm 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 going there and of course that's that, that's where I'm yeah, that I didn't I didn't think about it being I mean, we had nobody in show business in our life or anything, so I wasn't thinking about 
I don't know. At that age, you don't think about the odds or what you're up against. You're just like, man, I can make this whole class laugh. And that's all they're doing. And I, I'm, I'm just going to keep doing that. I'm going to, I'm going to get on TV too. I want to do all, I want to just, yeah, it just seemed, it just seemed natural. It wasn't until I actually started doing it that I realized, oh, this is, this might be tough. (laughs) You know, you say that at that age, you don't think about the odds. All I thought about at that age was the odds. By then I had already (laughs) adjusted my plans from major league baseball player to maybe umpire. (laughs) yeah no no i did like i was in sports i was i was played i played football my whole life and i remember i knew there was an end to that i knew and i was big and you know i was captain of the football team at the same time i was class clown but i knew this class clown thing i can really work (laughs) that other thing i you know i'm i'm not there's a limit here. Let's, let's these guys are going to get much bigger and much faster, and they going to they really you have to really want it. And and I was like, no, the the other way, you know, I I just thought I could you could do this forever, you know. Sports seems so hard and limited. <laughs> this thing just seemed like well, as long as I can just keep making milk come out of this kid's nose, <laughs> I'm still in the game. And then I picked a school that their football program was on suspension because of some kerfuffle and my father had wanted me to play division three football. And I was like, no, and you know, when I was done in high school, I was done. And I, when I realized they had a theater department, but they didn't have football, I was like, all right, I'll go there. And, uh, that was calculated. (laughs) Even more with Tom Papa. When we come back from a break, stick around. It's bullseye from maximumfun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Kohler Intelligent Toilets. With a range of smart features for pampering, relaxation, and cleanliness, Kohler Intelligent Toilets are designed to provide an elevated experience. Enjoy warm water cleansing, warm air drying, and heated seat control. Surround yourself with ambient lighting and automatic air freshening. Because every moment with a Kohler Intelligent Toilet is designed to make you feel your cleanest and most comfortable. Kohler invites you to discover what you've been missing at Kohler.com slash Intelligent Toilets. Hi, I'm Dave Hill from before, and I'm very excited to bring Dave Hill's podcasting incident back to Maximum Fun, where it belongs. You can get brand new episodes every Friday on MaximumFun.org or, you know, wherever. And while my partner Chris Gersbeck and I might lack in specific subject matter on our podcast, we make up for in special effects. Chris, add something cool right here. Also, we have explosions, animal noises, and sometimes even this. Dave Hill's podcasting incident every Friday on Maximum Fun. Chris, do another explosion right here. Right now, every household in the country is being asked to fill out the U.S. Census. It's the form that helps us determine how voting districts are redrawn, where to build public schools and hospitals, how to spend federal money. So why are some people afraid to fill it out? We're getting into all that this week on NPR's Code Switch podcast. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with comedian Tom Papa. 
Let's listen to another clip from Tom Papa's new special, You're Doing Great. A lot of Tom's material is about his family life. He has two daughters who are coming up on college age. And while a lot of parents might feel overwhelmed at the prospect of an empty nest, Tom Papa has big plans. I got to get the kids out. They got to move out about their life. And I got to do all that. That's another weird thing. I just realized I can't believe they're leaving. I have a 17 year old. She's leaving. It just struck me. I was like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I didn't want any of this. I didn't want this house. I didn't want this dog. I didn't want to live in this town. I did this for you. And now you're just going to leave? But then I thought, but wait, when they're both gone, what's stopping me? What's stopping me from going back to the life that I had before? How much can a Corolla be on eBay? I'm going to get a backpack filled with everything I liked when I was 19. Some Van Halen CDs, a little weed. I'm going to walk up the driveway and blow the house up behind me like Die Hard. How old were you when you first tried stand-up? Um, I was, I guess, I don't know what the age was. I was, it was in uh, 1993, it was June 12th, 1993. So I was like uh, late 20s. If your whole life had been leading up to that. Yeah. And you knew what you wanted. What kept you out of the club until after college because uh, they wanted me to get a degree and that made sense to me the people at the college <laughs> yeah those people no my parents <laughs> they really wanted me to get a degree and that made sense and you know they knew i had a designs elsewhere but they were like you know you, you got to do this and and I was cool with it. And, um, and I was, you know, spent all my time in the theater. I just took classes and was in every single play from freshman till I graduated. And I just lived in there. And I went to one, I went to one interview in New York, a friend of a friend who was in an ad agency in this cubicle. And this guy was so unhappy with his job and he's interviewing me. And I'm like, why would I be trying to get a job here to become this. <laughs> and, was, and I remember literally going back to campus, driving back from New York to campus and running across the parking lot back to rehearsal. And I was like, oh yeah, this is, I just, I could breathe again. And, but I, but the degree was important. So I did the, I got the degree and then came out and I tried to get, because I was acting so much, I tried to get some roles in New York and studied and that. And I had the stand-up thing, but I didn't really, you know, I was on this actor thing. So, but then I realized, oh, you got to get, someone's got to hire you to be, become an actor. And I looked in the Village Voice and it was like, if I just call this number in the New York Comedy Club, is if I bring three friends who will buy drinks and sit in the audience, I can go on stage. And, and that was it. Then once I did that, then that was it. Then the acting thing that whole route was like, okay, I don't have to, I can just go and get on stage. This was seemed like a, a funny little secret entrance into, uh, into show business. Did it go well the first time? Um, it went well enough. It was, wasn't, you know, literally my three friends, it was probably five friends cause they were all excited. I was doing it. And, uh, on the show it was me and Greg Giraldo and, um, so the guy, Gary, who I always space on his last name, 
he works at Kimmel. And it was just the three of us. There was nobody, it, you know, it was like five in the afternoon in the summer. <laughs> it wasn't, it was, so it was mostly my friends. And uh, it didn't go great. Like I thought I had a bunch of material for five minutes and I was done in about 30 seconds. <laughs> but <laughs> but I told one joke that was actually in the form of a written joke that worked. And that was like the big win of the day. And then I just kind of screwed around and and was probably not that great. But um but that I got that one joke out and that it worked was like, uh, it was a thrill because, you know, that's different than just making your buddies laugh. And, uh, and yeah, so well enough because that was, I was completely hooked. At what point did you feel like you were a comedian? It's interesting. I don't know. I mean, there's a big thing when you quit your day job and are actually making money at it. That, but before that, you kind of, I kind of felt like, I guess it was when I was running around doing shows on a regular basis. When I was like starting, like in the beginning, you, you know, I started in in ninety three. But those first like three, four years you, are so confusing, and you don't really get many spots. You go for months without even getting on stage, and but then when you you kind of turn the corner. And they start giving you regular spots. I was hosting a lot. They were asking me. They, we had this. I had a pretty quick trajectory where you knew that, like, you were doing it every week. You were doing it like two or three times. That's when it really started to feel like I was a comedian. And I would do shows with Geraldo and Gaffigan, and we would put on these little shows in the bottom of restaurants. And yeah, it, it's like when you're doing it regularly enough that I guess that's probably, you know, it's not a clear cut on this day, but around that time when it's like, Oh, we no longer have to wait months in between spots. This is a regular thing. That's when it really started to feel like we were at least comedians in our head, even though we weren't getting paid yet. Do you feel like when you came to middle aged and had children you were like entering the golden age of your performing career. Like, yes, finally, what the audience assumes about me when I walk on stage is something <laughs> I actually have something to say about. Yeah. yeah, not so much the expectations of what, of how they were, the audience is looking at me, but I knew clearly that getting around this age was going to be about when I would start becoming valuable. I would have more life experience and know and, and, and be coming from a, a place of real knowledge that I could actually speak on a, a multitude of issues with some depth and some clarity. And I'd also, I would have amassed enough skill to then take those ideas and, and put them out there. You know, I, I was never like the young, cool guy that was going to get swept up because he just had, he was just, quirky and had that cool energy. My stuff is very human and very all through like a familial lens. And it's, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's human is the way that I always try and describe it. It's more the human condition. And I, I could not comment on it with, with, uh, with cl real clarity at the age of 28 to 32, you know, I mean, that's, you're just figuring it out, you know, this this is now I feel like I'm starting to I'm starting to get it. 
You've worked a lot over the years with Jerry Seinfeld, one of the greatest stand-up comics of all time, certainly by any measure. I I've never met the man, but when I watch his uh, television program, I'm struck by the extent to which he seems to process everything in the entire world into a joke. Mm-hmm. And, and usually a good joke too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not just like, like I think there are, like I think there are a lot of comics who are extraordinarily witty mm-hmm. or have a really funny persona. Like, yeah. you know, um, you know, you could hand Tracy yeah. Morgan the phone book and it would be funny <laughs> to watch him read it. You know what I right. mean? Yeah. But I, I feel like you can look into Jerry Seinfeld's eyes and see him, you know, like a chemistry set, whatever <laughs> input is going in there is being broken down into its constituent parts so it can be reassembled into humor. Yeah. And I wonder what you've learned, both from watching him on stage a lot as a, you know, you've you've done a lot of road work with him, but also from talking to him about doing comedy. Yeah, he, he uh, funny is a real currency to him. And it really purely comes down to that. Like, is this thing, is this thing funny is just his, his filter, his nonstop filter. I mean, he'll have serious moments, of course, but there's, he has this gear where it, he knows that that is his job. <laughs> his job is to see it, translate it and push it back to you in a, in a very, very funny way. But the, the greatest thing I got from him, and it's kind of a combination of, of him, as the joke writer and as the man, as the person that he is, and how to carry yourself as a comedian, the the combination of it all is that this is a real, real craft that has real, real value. And if you put real, real hard work into it, you will be rewarded for it. And how lucky are we that we have the ability to, to be in this world uh, of comedy and treat it with joy and treat it with uh, gratefulness, but also treat it as something that has to be worked at uh, much, much harder than most comedians work at it. <laughs> and I really, I, I, that was the biggest, the biggest gift I got from him because in the beginning you're just, you're just funny and you're doing these shows and you're running around and you're just trying your best and, and to actually think, no, I can like, sit down and work at this and get better was was really really a relief as a young comic that was that was the biggest thing i got from him sometimes when i see him looking for the joke in something on the on the tv show <laughs> i honestly worry about him <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I know, I like, I remember he's on television. TV shows are supposed to be funny. Yeah. <laughs> this is edited. <laughs> yeah. Well, there was, I mean, when he talks about it, doing that show, it's all, it's like, there's, there is a bit of a PTSD <laughs> because there was a, this has to be, there was no like, oh, this is good enough. You could tell. You could tell just the way he talks about how they went through it, and he's kind of that way with his act. It's never just like, "Oh, that that'll eh, they'll get it." <laughs> it was always, and he still does that with jokes that are solid in his act for a long time, and 
he'll be like, what if I just change this word? What if I just change that word? Could it get funnier? And he would give it to me. He'd be like, you say this, but if you just said it like that, I'd be like, that doesn't make any difference, but he's watching me from the side of the stage. So I'll try it. And then it would be, the laugh would be bigger. (laughs) I'm like, damn it. He's right. (laughs) Uh, It's yeah. He, it's, you're not wrong for feeling that there was a lot of self-imposed pressure he put on himself by trying to be that, that much of a perfectionist about comedy. There's a bit in your new special, you're doing great where you say, and I'm, I'm, paraphrasing a little bit because we're on the radio i probably wouldn't play it straight up on the radio Mm -hmm. even though it doesn't have any swear words in it or anything but you say imagine uh being a man and taking the worst part of yourself out of your pants yeah the worst part of your body out of your pants and showing it to someone yeah presenting it to a woman like it's an award she'd be happy to receive that yeah. that's your that that's your hello your first move <laughs> <laughs> and i mean it's it struck me for two reasons you you kind of segue into a discussion of how you know being aware of of what men have done is so important in changing people's the context in which they live their lives and their workplaces is so important mm-hmm. um but you know it's obviously or or maybe not obviously but it seemed to me obviously like directly reminiscent of what louis ck did mm-hmm. um to a number of other comics and you know you're working in the la and, and new york comedy scenes where he was a very very big deal mm-hmm. um and i wonder if you were worried about how to manage the tone of something like that when that was always going to be part of the context. Um, no, not at all. I, hmm. I, th- there was no, no. I think it, when, in my mind, when you know, it's funny. We always have like these little things in our own brain of what where our jokes live in our brain. Like I talk about a certain thing, and it's my picture of it. Sometimes it's different from the listener's picture of it. Um, totally aware of of his thing, but, uh, unfortunately he's not the only one (laughs) and that that is seemed to be a move by a large number of men (laughs) that all this time of trying to, uh, court ladies (laughs) throughout my life and try and, uh, of all the, of all the ways I would think of how to, uh, get some girl to like me. That was, never in my mind of of a possibility of you just you just reach in and ta-da and uh and as far back as hearing politicians that would do that move and and comedians and producers and it just seems to me like such a almost like it was like a surprise like as being part of as you know like being a guy you're still surprised when you hear that guys were doing that. It's like, wait, what? So it's so clearly wrong. And it's so clearly uh, out of the realm of thinking that, no, I mean, what could possibly make me feel like not talking about that because somebody in somewhere near our world did that too? Well, it doesn't make it any less wrong. 
you can't make you can't i guess you you can't be on that side of the argument and be like dude that's not cool and get me to say say you're right <laughs> it's like no i uh i i have daughters and sisters and uh i work with a lot of women and i think we're all in agreement that that move by whoever you are <laughs> is creepy and wrong so uh yeah i, I never give it a second of thought I found it kind of comforting um, to have a bit where the premise, I think, was, and, you know, I'm, I'm speaking for you here, so correct me if I'm wrong, but, like, the premise is both that, that is a horrible thing to do, and it's horrible that people are doing, that people do that, and mm. also that it's great that something is changing about people doing that, that the people's, you know, people's lives and workplaces are improving because we're saying out loud that that's, that's horrible. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've got kids that are about to go out into the world and they've got to go meet all these dudes in their lifetime. And, you know, it's enough to navigate guys in general and to, to think that, at least at work, this won't happen anymore is like, Oh God, what a relief. You know, I can't believe it took this long, but yeah, thank God, you know, that, that everybody, you know, it, once you mix, when you mix sexuality in, it's a very, it, it, it's very muddied and, and difficult place to navigate, but at least we're writing a real solid rule book for how you work and how we treat each other while we are working that is at least uh, at least some progress. It's like, and then you can decide whether or not you go to happy hour and meet this hairy, hairy jerk doing shots afterwards. <laughs> but at least in the workplace, we've got that sewn up and everyone's on the same page. Thank God. Well, Tom Papa, I, I loved your special. I, I really enjoyed it both before and after the cataclysms taking place in the world. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to be on Bullseye. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Good talking and to you. I, I apologize for my dog barking in the background. I think you can never apologize for that. Come on. There was it's a squirrel outside. <laughs> yeah. I think you should get used to that. Tom Papa. You can watch his terrific new special on Netflix. It's called You're Doing Great. Tom is also the host of the show What a Joke with Papa and Fortune on Sirius XM's Netflix channel, which airs Mondays through Thursdays. Uh, Tom also writes and appears on the public radio show Live From Here. In May, Tom will release his second book from St. Martin's Press, You're Doing Great and Other Reasons to Stay Alive. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is currently produced out of the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around Los Angeles, California. Now, normally we would give you an update on what's happening outside our office in MacArthur Park, but instead, uh, here at my house, uh, my wife overheard this exchange between my six-year-old son and eight-year-old daughter after my daughter noticed that there was some whipped cream in the fridge. She said to him, hey, I noticed we have a little something that goes on top of hot cocoa in a blue spray bottle in the fridge. My son Oscar said, Gatorade? 
show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow is Jordan Cowling. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. And... We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. You can keep up with the show there. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.